Now would you hear a reading from Genesis 46, uh, starting in verse 1 and going through 47, 12. So Israel began his journey, taking with him all that he had. When he came to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in a vision during the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, he replied, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will certainly bring you back from there. Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob started out from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little children and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent along to transport him. Jacob and all his descendants took their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they went down to Egypt. He brought, he brought with him to Egypt his sons, his grandsons, his daughters, and granddaughters, all his descendants. Jacob sent Judah before him to Joseph to accompany him to Goshen. So they came to the land of Goshen. Joseph harnessed his chariot and went up to meet his father Israel in Goshen. When he met him, he hugged his neck, and he wept on his neck for quite some time. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They take care of livestock. They have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. Pharaoh will summon you and say, what is your occupation? Tell him, your servants have taken care of cattle from our youth until now, both we and our fathers so that you may live in the land of Goshen, for everyone who takes care of sheep is disgusting to the Egyptians. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father, my brothers, their flocks and herds and all that they have owned have arrived from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. He took five of his brothers and introduced them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph's brothers, What is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants take care of flocks, just as our ancestors did. Then they said to Pharaoh, we have come to live as temporary residents in the land. There is no pasture for your servants' flocks because the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. So now please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best region of the land. They may live in the land of Goshen. If you know of any highly capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father, Jacob, and presented him before Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, how long have you lived? Jacob said to Pharaoh, all the years of my travels are 130. All the years of my life have been few and painful. The years of my travels are not as long as those of my ancestors. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers. He gave them territory in the land of Egypt, in the best region of the land, the land of Ramses, just as Pharaoh had commanded. Joseph also provided food for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household, according to the number of their little children. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, now in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Holy, holy, holy. 
to the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. Lord, be with your people through your word and the preaching of your word. So I pray. Amen. Okay, so this, this story, kind of set aside by itself, you know, held in isolation, is, is such a, a, a rosy narrative, right? Like, it has all of the ingredients of a, like, proper heartwarming tale. You know, kind of central to this story is the reunion between Jacob and Joseph. They've been separated from each other for decades, Jacob believing that his son, his favorite son Joseph, was dead. And so kind of right at the heart of this story, perhaps the most noticeable scene, is the reunion. And it's, it's incredibly dramatic, um, appropriately, in how it's depicted. You know, they, they embrace and they weep in each other's arms. You know, if this was put to film, this would, went, this would be when the music swells and the cameras spin. Like, this is the highly dramatic, climactic moment. And it's nice. It's really nice. I know, add on top of that, that Joseph is reconciled with his brothers, and they're happy and glad to be with one another. You know, these people from neighboring lands strike an alliance that is genuinely mutually beneficial, and then this family whose story we've been tracing for a while is settled in a lush pasture by the sea. Like, that's good. That's really, that's really nice. You know, this is a decidedly pleasant end to what has been a, a turbulent account through Genesis, right? Like, as we've, as we've moved through these chapters, as we've traced the story of this family, through all of its complications, its tension, its difficulty— you know, this, this would be the happy ending of Genesis that we have maybe been clamoring for all along. It's good. It's really good. And maybe this is the first time since the garden we can say something is really good. And at the risk of sounding like I'm drumming up chaos for the sake of something interesting to talk about, I think that there's a, a dark cloud that's kind of lingering over this really good story. Well, what do I mean? So we've been encouraging you the entire time we've been going through Genesis to hear the stories of Genesis the way the first hearers would, the recently released slaves from Egypt. They're hearing the story, and surely the question humming on the front of their mind is, why, why would God do this? Like they, because they understand that this is their origin story, right? Like this famine, this decision by God to send them to Egypt— in a way, served as their glide path into four centuries of slavery. So surely, as they heard this story, it wouldn't have been as good as it initially presented itself, and they would have wondered, like, why would, why would God send us there? We, that's, that's how we got to Egypt? That's what led to our 400 years of slavery? And it wasn't all bad. You know, it started, it started really well for the first generation. You know, the famine was so severe in the ancient world, that other neighboring countries were, were coming into Egypt and they were offering themselves as slaves just to get enough food to survive. And yet, you know, this relatively insignificant clan has made their way from the land of Canaan, and they, of all people, have a permanent allotment of land in a very lush part of Egypt, and all of their needs are met. Like, it starts really well, but we know what follows. We know what the generations after will experience. And at the start of our text, you have to remember that the soil underneath 
Jacob's feet were that of the promised land. And he's removed from that place. And not for nothing, you know, this isn't the first time a famine has compelled one to think, I'll go to Egypt for safety. In Genesis 26, Isaac had the same thought in responding to a famine. He was going to go down to Egypt, and God said to him, don't go. Don't go to Egypt, but stay in the land that I will show you. I mean, wouldn't it have made a lot more sense if God had caused the land of Canaan to flourish, right? Like if the promised land was, was a bit more promising and all the nations of the world would, would go to Canaan for deliverance, but that's not what we see. Egypt is allowed to flourish while Canaan suffers and the people have to leave the land. So burning on their minds is why would God send us away from the land of promise? Really, the question that we're asking is, doesn't this threaten the apparent reliability of the covenant and the character of the person who made it, right? If he would send his people out of the land of promise into a land where, yeah, you're going to survive the next five years of famine, but then be slaves for the next 400, it feels a really lousy return on investment. So doesn't this threaten the apparent reliability of the covenant and the character of the God who made it? That's a really good question. That's a really important question. Surely would have been on the minds of the first readers, and I think is the question that you and I need to tackle right now. So what we're going to do is we're going to analyze a few of the key scenes from this story and see if we can't get a fuller picture. So the first, the first one I want to talk about was the first few verses right out of the gates in chapter 46, the first ones we heard, when Jacob goes and converses with God at Beersheba. Now, Beersheba... Um, was to the south of where they were staying. So it was kind of on their way down to Egypt, but not directly. Beersheba wasn't on their most direct route. They had to make an intentional detour to go to Beersheba. They, they disrupted their trip, enduring the famine a little bit longer so that they could go out of their way to Beersheba. Well, why? Why do that? We have to remember that Beersheba was sacred geography for this family. It was a really important place. Abraham had met with God in Beersheba and planted a tree to commemorate that meeting. Um, Isaac, later in his life, worshipped God and met with God and called on him at Beersheba and then built an altar to commemorate that meeting. And so it seems that Jacob is detouring off the main route to Egypt to seek God's mind on this one. That's, you know an understandable, notable, noble thing, and God is generous enough to respond to him. We got it in our text. But when they're speaking, he says, I am God, the God of your father. Hear this part, because it's really important. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will certainly bring you back from there. And Joseph will close your eyes. Now, if we're really paying attention, like this speech should like fuel the flames of our initial inquiry even more, right? Like, why are you blessing this? It would be so much simpler and more formulaic if we could all blame it on Jacob. Like, well, it obviously went bad because you decided to remove yourself from the land of promise and in doing so, removed yourself from God's blessing, right? Oh, how lovely and simple it would be if we could just pin this one on Jacob. But God told him, do not be afraid to go down to the land of Egypt. And ordinarily, we equate do not be afraid with 
no need to worry, right? Those are, those are very comparative ideas in our minds. Like there's this understood, like you'll be fine. If the Lord says, do not be afraid, we hear, you'll be fine. There's no re reason to worry. But out of the mouth of God, we hear, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why would he say this? I think a key hint to understanding is the words he says directly after. He says something that sounds really familiar at first, but it's actually a promise with more specificity than we've ever heard before. He says, for I will make you into a great nation there. Like I said, the first part, we've, we've heard a lot. For I will make you into a great nation. I mean, here are just a few of the, a few of the times we've heard him talk about this. Genesis 12, 15, 17, 18, 21. This is a key promise. He says it a lot. It's really important. But here, in his conversation with Jacob, there is a new level of specificity, entirely unique, and seems to suggest that Egypt is a fundamental part of this plan. When he says, for I will make you into a great nation there. Okay, how could that be? Well, let's look at the next scene. Keep rounding out our picture. So Joseph, Joseph is very intentional when he's speaking with his brothers after, you know, the whole dramatic, sweet, tear-filled reunion. He's really tactful in how he coaches them to speak to Pharaoh, right? Like, we, we, we learned from the text last week and then the text this week that Egyptians thought Hebrews were gross and that they thought shepherds were disgusting. Okay, well, so this family checks both of those delightful boxes. And though kind of basic conventional wisdom would say, hey, if you're going in front of the most impressive man, most powerful man in the world, like, and you know that you think Hebrews are gross and shepherds are disgusting, like, maybe don't lead with that. Like, hold those cards a little close to the chest. Present yourself as impressive or valuable or necessary to the completion of Joseph's mission in Egypt as possible. You know, show yourself to be an asset and things will go well. Show yourself to be impressive and you might gain favor. You know, don't lead with what you know to be a negative in his mind. And yet that is exactly how J Joseph coaches his brothers to speak to uh, Pharaoh. He says, when you go before Pharaoh, say, we take care of flocks just as our ancestors did. In other words, not only are the few of us you're talking to, shepherds, but so is everyone else who came with us. By your designation, all of us are disgusting. And the force of this point is even more clear in the, in the Hebrew language. You know, what we get in the English translation is, we take care of flocks. And that, that sounds fine. That's muted. That's, that's pretty tepid. But more literally uh, in the Hebrew, the way they introduce themselves is, we are men of cattle, which is perhaps the least glamorous introduction of yourself I can imagine in front of the most powerful man in the world. Hi, Pharaoh, I am a man of the animals. And yet this created the response in Pharaoh that Joseph was hoping for. Like, oh, okay, I get it. Well, then go live off by yourself. Take Goshen. It's fertile. It's great for flocks. And, you know, not for nothing, it's pretty far away from the rest of us. 
Like a Hebrew is gross, a shepherd is disgusting. You happen to be both. So if you please, the further the better. So why is that in Israel's best interest? Well, remember what we just talked about. God had said to them, I will make you into a great nation there. Well, it's probably because this wasn't happening in Canaan. In, in the land of Canaan, they were, they were intermarrying. They were adopting other gods. They were just kind of assimilating into the culture. They were taking other household idols. Like They weren't becoming the distinct nation that they were intended to be. Yet in this land of people who thought they were gross and disgusting, they were intentionally set away and allowed an environment to grow and become distinct in their relationship with the Lord. So now we come to the last scene I want to talk about. And it's after the brothers have gone out of Pharaoh's presence and Jacob is introduced to Pharaoh. And and Jacob does something here uh, that we would characterize as way north of odd. Like to call it bizarre would be a pretty charitable characterization. He blesses Pharaoh. Now we we might think of blessing as just kind of this like, conventional greeting, or even like, oh, bless you, bless you, thank you. Like, it's a show of Jacob's gratitude to all that Pharaoh's doing for him and his family, but that's not really how we've talked about blessing through the rest of Genesis. That's not really how we've been taught to think about blessing through the rest of Genesis. What we've seen, one blesses another, it's one bestowing privilege and favor on the person that they're blessing, right? Like, ordinarily, we've seen it, a father blessing a son, kind of like a customary greater, an understood, more significant, blessing the understood lesser. And so when we keep in mind that Pharaoh was the most powerful man alive, and standing in front of him was this meager 130-year-old Hebrew herdsman, it just makes no sense. Until you remember that this too was a critical part of God's design for the covenant, right? Like a key element of the covenant as it was first introduced was this. Through you, I will bring blessings to all the families of the earth. Or we might have been tempted to see a covenant under threat at the beginning. We see a covenant doing quite well. We see a people placed in an environment where they can grow in their distinctiveness, their size, and their commitment to God. The uh, theologian Bruce Waltke said that Egypt was the womb that God used to form his nation. All right, well, that, that paints a picture. And then the other half of that is the most prominent and powerful family on earth was blessed by this relatively insignificant clan. Yeah, that sounds like exactly what God had designed and had in mind for his covenant. Okay, so what about the land, though? Yeah, like, yeah, those are really good. But we, but we can't forget that these people are now removed from the land. The land of promise, not for nothing. Well, let's go back to what he said at Beersheba. When he's talking to Jacob and he says, I will go down with you to Egypt and I myself will certainly bring you back from there. Again, we've been encouraging you through our entire study of Genesis. I've already reminded you once in this sermon to think about these stories the way the first hearers would have heard them. The first hearers of these stories being the freed slaves of Egypt, right? 
Imagine how they would have heard those words in this text. I myself will certainly bring you back from here. And we've said that that God was using all of Genesis to introduce himself to them. Yes? Yeah. We've said that God was using all of Genesis to teach them of their heritage and family history. Yeah. But they've probably wondered till this point where exactly they fit into this story. Kind of the reasons for why they're wandering through the wilderness led by a fire and pillar still don't make perfect sense. Like, okay, I understand you've introduced yourself. Nice. I know where I came from, but why are you leading us now? Where are we going? This is perhaps the first time in the entirety of the Genesis account that the first hearers understand their place in the story. God said to Jacob, I will bring you out. And the first people hearing this are the ones who were just brought out. Imagine going your entire life, believing you have been forgotten and abandoned by the God of your ancestors, only then now to hear that he's been with you this entire time in Egypt. And you are the fulfillment of the promise he spoke to Jacob 400 years prior. Yeah, that feels like a fitting climax to God's introduction of himself. God saying, you want to know? You want to know exactly who I am? I'm the one who has been with you in difficulty and saw your face when I spoke of deliverance. That's precisely who I am. And it's so fitting. It it, it works so well because as we trace the grand narrative of Scripture, this is consistently how God is making himself known. This is precisely what he wants you to know about himself. You know, kind of taking a step outside of our text and Casting a larger net. Um, Rachel, you can throw up the, that. Yeah. Starting at the beginning. In Genesis 1, he's the God who rested in his creation. I'm not going to get into all of it, but it's temple literature. Essentially saying he took up residence within that which he created. He's there. That's how he wanted to introduce himself in the first chapter. And then the Exodus, he tells Moses, when you go before Pharaoh, I will go with you. When they're in the wilderness through Moses, he says, your God is the one who is going with you. He will not fail you or abandon you. When they're preparing to retake the promised land, he says to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not abandon you or leave you alone. Later, when these people are in exile, he says to the prophet Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I am with you. When you pass through the streams, they will not overwhelm you. Referring to God this way was an important part of corporate worship, even. They would sing in corporate worship, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee to escape your presence? If I were to ascend to the heavens, you would be there. If I were to sprawl out in Sheol, there you would be. So when he says to Jacob, I will go with you to Egypt and bring you out. He is letting the first hearers know exactly who he is and precisely why he is leading them through the wilderness now. Ben Patterson, who's a a Christian author and theologian, uh, said, God always comes alongside us in our waiting and our suffering. God always comes alongside us in our waiting and suffering. Hear this. But it is rarely to explain what is happening to us. Rather, he comes to speak of his love for us, to assure us that he is near, and to tell us what he requires of us as we wait and we hurt. You know, dark clouds and all, over this narrative, it is possible to interpret the story differently, knowing that God was present and involved and providential in the entire scene. 
right? Which means that it's impossible, it's possible to think about the stories of our lives differently when we accept that God is present and providential and involved. And it's kind of helpful that our, you know, our tracing the, the story of this family gave us a really interesting case study about what this looks like and how to do this well. So as we compare the lives and chapters of Jacob and Joseph, they start very similarly. They, were, they both received an undeserved blessing and birthright. Neither was truly the firstborn, and because of it, they were hated by their brothers or brother. After this, their stories fork dramatically, right? Like Jacob fled and became wealthy where he ended up. While Joseph was stripped, thrown down, and sold as a slave. Jacob took wives and had sons, while Joseph was accused by another's wife, the person he was in service to, of impropriety. Jacob got to settle in the promised land, and because of that, Joseph was sent to prison. Jacob was forgiven by the brother he had wronged, but decided to reject the reconciliation. Whereas Joseph forgive, forgave the brothers who had wronged him and offered them reconciliation. And Jacob received deliverance from another's hand while Joseph was responsible for offering that deliverance. Two very different stories, two very different fortunes. And yet it's crazy to think that when we look at those two competing lists, how these two respond. Jacob is the one who says, all the years of my life have been few and painful. What are you talking about? And Joseph is the one who said to his brothers, do not be upset with yourselves because you sold me here, because God sent me to preserve your life. There's a, there's a, a German word that's one of my favorites. It's Heilsgeschichte, which means a theological interpretation of history. You know, well, leave it to the Germans to have a word meaning something like that. Or to say it another way, to see the movements of our life not as a random unfolding of events, but a story where God is active and providential in the good things and the painful ones. Joseph interpreted the scenes of his life differently because he believed God was with him and he was in them. And so right now, I'm not going to over-analogize Egypt and say, what Egypt are you in, friends? But I will ask you, does it cause you to think differently about the stories and chapters of your life, to see the presence of God in those places? Does it cause you to interpret the unfolding of events in your life differently, understanding that God is providential in those places? Does it? In your job hunts, God is there. He's providential. In your parenting, particularly when it's hard, God is there. He's providential. In your arguments, in your grieving, in your cancer, in your navigating embassies and customs, God is in those places. Does it cause us to think about and interpret those scenes of our life differently? And then remember that when Jesus was introduced, he did it in the precisely same way that the people had now come to know God. Look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
the first introduction we get of Jesus is that he's one who's here. The 17th century French monk, Brother Lawrence, said the most holy and important practice in the spiritual life is recognizing the presence of God and to take great pleasure that God is with you. You know, ordinarily, I I like to tell you kind of on the front end, like, here's my hope for you today. Here's what I hope this sermon will accomplish. Like, we're not just going through a fun thought exercise. I want something for you. And if it's anything, it's that. I want you to take great pleasure in the realization that God is active and providential in the chapters of your life. Does that cause you to think about them differently? And if we needed a reminder, which we did, we always do, he made his presence as tangible as possible for us. We were given a meal, right? Like he used the elements of bread and wine to remind us and help us delight in the reality that he is near us in our lives. Because for on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. After giving thanks for it, he broke it. He said, this is my body. It's real. It's here in front of you. It's given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant poured out in my blood. Real. It's here. It's with you for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the mystery of faith that Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen and Christ will come again. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So let's receive them with thanksgiving in our hearts. Let's pray together. Emmanuel, God is with us. What a mystery, but what a gift. Lord, cause us to think differently about what happens to us today because you are with us. Cause us to think differently about what we do today because you are with us. Cause us to think differently about the words that we say because you are with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.